How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network, with gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. We're all looking to make more sustainable choices. But making your own shoes out of natural materials could pose a few challenges. At the Allbirds Innovation Lab, they're doing all the sciencey stuff, like research and testing to create shoes from natural materials. Like leather made from plants, eucalyptus tree fiber, and sugarcane. It's not rocket science. It's shoe science. Allbirds is making shoes better than natural. They're supernatural. Find your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Social Club. I am Rachel Holloway. And I'm Heather Northcraft. And we are your hosts over at the Wine Time Podcast. We're two best friends that share a passion for talking. And with that, we decided to create our very own podcast. Or MomCast, if you will. Each week, we bring mom content to each episode. The good moms, the badass moms, and our favorite, the crime moms. You can find us at Wine Time on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can find us at our Instagram or TikTok at wine underscore time underscore pod. Come check us out. Welcome to the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. I'm Dee. And I'm Rhonda, and together we are the Sake Sisters. For more information, check out our website at www.switchbladesisterssocialclub.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Switchblade Sisters Social Club. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. I'm Dee. And I'm Rhonda, and together we are the Sake Sisters. For more information, check out our website at www.switchbladesisterssocialclub.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Switchblade Sisters Social Club. Thanks for listening. This is Dee, and there's Rhonda over there. We are the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, and I am so excited about today's bonus episode with one of my true loves, (laughs) Steve Gaskin. He's one hell of a man. (laughs) He is one hell of a man. He's not here yet. This is why we're being really gushy in a way that we'd probably be embarrassed to (laughs) say to his face. He is a former police detective inspector with Scotland Yard, the murder squad. He's worked on some really intense cases. And he went back to uni to study psychology and maths and then became a teacher and now has got a company called The Crime Lab, where he goes around and does different talks in pubs about different true crime issues. So my first talk that I went to by him was on the dark side of serial killers. 
as opposed to the light side. <laughs> and then I went to one called The Mind of a Murderer. He uh, he used a picture of me and him as the advertising for that, which kind of makes it look like I'm the murderer, but I'm okay <laughs> with it. D is the poster girl for the crime lab. <laughs> Seems so. So we uh, we have a special place in our heart for this man. And um, I guess because I just follow him around at his events, whether they're in person or online, because he also does these amazing online hour-long webinars on different topics that are free. All of the links are in the show notes. So if you want to check it out, then go have a little look. It's absolutely fantastic. So I guess because I've gone to so many of his events, I finally wore him down and he agreed to come and speak to us. <laughs> How excited are we? Do you know what? Dee's been chasing him like Pepe Le Pew <laughs> chases his victims. That's what this whole assault has reminded me of. But it has paid off because we've got... The, Did it work? The DCI Steve Gaskin coming on. Um, I feel like my vibe is kind of creepy, but cute with it. <laughs> and a little bit... Annoying. You've ended up on several dates that were accidental dates. <laughs> yeah, but that's just me being a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about that with Steve Gaskin. He'll be like, how have you not been murdered yet? <laughs> so we are going to welcome him in a moment. And we're going to try really hard not to, I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl too much, but I probably will. But I'm going to try really hard not to swear in the presence of the DCI Steve Gaskin. I can't make that promise. You probably failed already <laughs> on that when you met him. On that note, let's bring him on. The legend, Steve Gaskin. Big thank you for coming along to, um, you know, our events. That's okay. I absolutely love them. She's your ultimate fangirl, Steve. Can we call you Steve? <laughs> well, people have called me far worse than that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we should call you DZI Steve Gaskin because um, it feels a little informal to call you Steve. <laughs> no. It's uh, it's interesting. When I got to the rank of DI, traditionally in the Met, they call you governor or sir. Mm. I didn't really That's like That's we can do. No? Yeah. No, call me Steve. All right. Okay. <laughs> I was going to I was gonna volunteer chief. Yeah, you can call me that. Yeah. All right, chief. Do you like our cushions, Steve? Yeah, I do. They're really, really good. Yeah, they're really good. I suppose I ought to get a crime lab one or something. You really should. And we have one of these whizzing its way over to you or bring it along to your next event. Yes. Well, Steve, if if the, you ever produce a crime lab, any merch, we'll, we'll happily display it for you. I told him because at the last event that I went to with Steve, he was wearing a very snazzy hoodie. Oh. And oh, I was we jealous. Love <laughs> we love a good hoodie. So Send us the link. We'll get some. And Steve, I want to make a big apology because I've been desperate to come along to your events, but I've got two little kids who hold me hostage, especially in the evenings. So um, I'm planning on escape, making an escape one day to come and see you. But I, I, yeah, I'm really sorry that I've missed them. That's right. Where do you live? I'm in Chiswick. So you've been just down the road from me. If you All can. right. Yeah. 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 It's been painful to be so near yet so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually finished. That's where I finished off. I was the um a dci in charge of all crime for the london borough of hounslow oh wow so it took in felton brentford hounslow and of course chiswick wow Felton, my bet i bet that kept you busy huh <laughs> yeah not as busy as some places that i'd worked at oh, to really be wow uh, my husband's from near the felton area although he likes to say hampton but you know i'm sure most people from felton like to say they're from hampton instead <laughs> 
Well, I told Steve that one of the things that got us interested in true crime was the Levi Belfield case because mm. we were oh, um, living in the area yeah. and the Similar age of the victims. And we have our mum who we like to call the prophecy of doom. Steve, mm. I'm sure you've met people like this who... Um, <laughs> We love her very much, but she's been quite anxious, highly anxious, and transferred a lot of her anxieties onto us. Um, healthy anxieties, some of them, because it is a dangerous world out there. But you're doing your Fuller's gigs. You're you're working with Fuller's in particular, aren't you? And and doing a tour of these amazing talks. And the first one I went to, which was at the Chiswick, George IV, you mentioned that one of the first cases you worked on was that of Archibald Hall. Can you tell us a little bit more about this one? Because it's so creepy. Yeah, to be honest with you, it was absolute pure chance. Uh, during the first two years of your uh, police service, you have to do like work experience. Uh, it's like an apprenticeship. And right at the end, you have to be signed off. You have to do a final exam. And if you fail, that's the end of it. And that's still the same. Well, it just so happened in uh, 1977, I went on to CID attachment at Chelsea Police Station. And literally the day that I started there, the Scott Elliott murders, or it was two uh, husband and wife that were killed by Archibald Hall, broke. So my job was uh, answering the phone, uh, as simple as that. I think there were six of us answering the phones because there was a load of stuff coming in. Anyway, I did quite well on that. And they then asked me to cover nights. And Archibald Hall actually rung into the incident room. And he was looking to potentially give himself up. He didn't, but I engaged him for some time. And uh, that was really how I came to be coming to the CID and remain there for the rest of my service, because I didn't intend doing that. The Archibald Hall case was a bit like Cluedo in a sense, because it's the, it was the butler that did it. Archibald Hall was a petty criminal, and he alleged that he was trained to be a butler, you know, like an, a British butler. He'd been in prison. He got a job with Mr. and Mrs. Scott Elliott, who were very wealthy and retiring antique dealers. And together with someone else, he decided that he was going to rob them. But Mrs. Scott Elliott walked in at the time they were planning it, and they killed her. So what they did is they suffocated her with a pillow. And in the panic that ensued, they then harnessed, and I remember this woman, a, a, a local sex worker, called Mary Coggle. She then drugged Walter Scott Elliott, the old man, and they put the two bodies in the car and drove to Scotland. And they buried them in Perthshire and Inverness, respectively. And they strangled the old man and uh, beat him with a shovel and left him in some woods, which was awful, really. So after that, Coggle, the sex worker, enjoyed wearing uh, Mrs Scott Elliott's clothes. And that started to annoy Archibald Hall. So he hit her over her head with a crowbar. So that's victim number three there and left her body in a barn in uh, Dumbartonshire. And a farmer discovered her body on Christmas morning, actually, 25th December 1977. It goes on from there. So the pair left Scotland and they they headed to a holiday home in Cumbria, which is exactly what I've, I've got a holiday home in Cumbria. And I'm going next week, actually. Are you trying to tell us something, Steve? Yeah, yeah. so they <laughs> shot off there. And they discovered uh, that Hall's half-brother had recently been released for paedophilic offences. And Hall hated him, so he tied him up and drowned him in a bath. So actually what you've got there is quite unique, really, because you've got a 
serial killer because he fits the criteria three or more murders over a period of three weeks or more but the motive for two of them was robbery you can see that the one with the uh, sex worker mary cockle was rage and the last one was hatred so i can only find in the literature one other serial killer that had more than one motive the guy's called donald gaskins with an s <laughs> which is most unfortunate uh, because we're irish ancestry and so was he and he was called peewee and the reason he was called peewee it's an americanism i didn't know is because he was quite a short fella and that was one of his motivations because people used to take the mickey out of him so he was killing two sets of people one set where they owed him money from his business and then the other set is where he just didn't like people but this is actually quite unique archibald hall because he went on a a killing spree, really, with three different and separate motives. When you spoke to him on the phone, was he a suspect at that time? Mm. Oh, yeah. So you knew while you were talking to him what he had done. Yeah. How is that feel? Odd, because bearing in mind, I'm 19 years of age. I've been out the Met Police Training School for less than a year, and here I am speaking to someone that uh, needs to be taken off the street. What was good, and he's dead now, the chief superintendent, so... In uh, American terms, that's equivalent of captain. I called him in and he was ecstatic. He said, you've done very, very well. But eventually Archibald Hall was arrested in Scotland at a roadblock, which was set up purely to try and catch him. So, yeah, it was weird. And I think all credit to the mayor. When I joined, I was somewhat of an introvert. And they, not in a horrible way at all, they trained that out of me. So I became more fluent uh, more confident. And that was really uh, the, the kind of first thing I'd done, really, in terms of serious crime. At, at that point, at age 19, had you already been trained in how to elicit a confession and how to keep that person on the line? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. A lot of it's done at 20 weeks. Traditionally, it was 20 weeks at uh, the police training college in Hendon. That training has now been slimmed down to 16 weeks. And in fairness, it's coming to an end. But for the last year, uh, for five days a month, I've been contracted to the Met Police Detective Training School to actually go up there and teach, which has been an absolute delight. And it kind of rationalises where the British police are at the moment in terms of these young men and women. And 90% of all direct entrant detectives that are joining are female. Oh, that's nice. Well, I have to say when because I've gone to a couple of your events and some of the people are either looking to become police officers or in that field already or a criminologist and so forth. But it, your event isn't targeted at people that are working in that career. It's definitely for everyone or any true crime enthusiast like myself. Um, but the people that I've met that are going into crime fighting, let's say, are so inspiring and absolutely adorable. It gives you a bit of hope. That's good. And that's what's needed in the Met. Everything I taught was just gearing towards getting the, the confidence of the public back, particularly particularly women. Especially after this last year, Steve, right? I mean, it's not been a good year. Yeah. I've just recently briefed, uh, and I'll send it to you. No problem with that. I've just written a paper for my Member of Parliament. She's very, very senior, and she wanted a briefing on the state of uh, British policing, particularly with regard to uh, women reporting attacks. I'm on the brink. I don't know whether this will happen or not. And I think 
one of the questions you're going to talk about is the crime lab. We try and stick to fact and not uh, a whodunit. I'm at the early stages of working with someone where we're going to get downloaded a lot of money to research working more with suspects and protagonists of domestic abuse because 33% of all homicides in the UK last year were domestic abuse. That's got to stop. That's got to stop. We can't work out what's scarier, to be honest, the fact that you're more likely to be murdered by someone that you do know. Or... Yeah, exactly. So, Steve, one thing I'm I'm really interested in is your teaching, you know, the fact that you're also a teacher. And I was a teacher, a secondary teacher for 12 years. And one of the questions that I had was, are you sort of hyper aware and always on the lookout for unusual traits and nuances and mannerisms and signs of a potential killer in people? I always wonder how in your line of work, how you ever sort of have trust and faith in humanity after the things that you've seen and experienced. And do you see life through a different lens? Sorry, this is several questions in one, but do you see life through a different lens? And do you interpret people differently? And do you find it hard to take off those detective glasses when you meet new people and not notice all of those little nuances that you may see that other people will be oblivious to? Yeah. I think the first thing to say is I'm retired. That's the first thing from investigating crime. So far as being a psychologist, a lot of people think, you know, social events and that, that you're screening them or something. I'm certainly not doing that. But what does stand out is my two fields of expertise are uh, criminal psychopaths and secondly, offender profiling. And I can spot now very, very quickly, because I've been doing it for so long, if someone's got psychopathic tendencies, now they can manifest themselves in a number of different ways. But when it starts tripping on away from uh, egotism into narcissism and maybe Machiavellianism, and you see those traits coming out, you've got a possibly a dangerous person there. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to manifest itself in crime. Not, not at all. But, uh, and this will make you, your listeners uh, laugh. The, for me, that was good. When my daughters were, were growing up, you know, if they brought a boyfriend home. Mm-hmm. It's one of our questions, Steve. <laughs> yeah, if there's any of those traits you can spot. The other thing is, is I have an inherent scientific belief that most people are good people. And when you look in this country, about the amount of people who've got criminal records, it's extremely small. I was asked a question yesterday uh, by a retired police officer, do I think that everyone should be given a DNA profile at birth? Well, the answer is no, I don't. And secondly, there's operational problems with that, because let's just say I lived in Australia or something and I migrated or emigrated to this country, how do you then get my profile? So you've got the Brits, but so there's operational problems there. And also there's like a over-reliance, a huge over-reliance on DNA evidence, uh, which is stopping young senior detectives in my role doing what I call coppering. So, yes, I do look at life through a different lens. And that lens changed hugely in 1998. Uh, 98? No, before that. In the early 90s, I was in charge of the Central London Child Protection Team. And that was very difficult because not only were you dealing with all of these cases, but you had to look after your staff. And I had young children. And later on, uh, we were living in an area where Belfield struck in Stanwell. I dealt with the first attack that uh, Belfield manifested on a young woman in Hampton. It was my first day as a DCI. 
literally I was the results came through I was promoted and I had to cover the whole of West London including Hampton and I brought the whole of Hampton to a standstill because I sealed it all off and then when you look at people like Wayne Cousins, Levi Belfield, Stephen Port these guys are extremely dangerous people we have too many people in prison uh, in this country we're bursting at the seams but people like that, in terms of dangerousness, need to stay in prison. And I'm on the lookout for that, certainly, because I've been doing it for so long. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Uh, you can't help but not do that. And I think the telltale sign uh, is extreme egocentricity. So if you get in someone, you go to a party, blah, 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 all about me, that's telling me something as a big start for 10. Hmm. If we're ever single again, Steve, can we bring you along to our first dates? <laughs> Just in case. Your daughters are lucky, Steve. They really are. Yeah. And you know what? I, I honestly really think it's commendable that you choose to still have faith in humanity and see the majority of people as good people, because I'm sure that's a choice that you actually have to actively make so that you don't become too disillusioned with everything that you have experienced. Yeah, that's true. That takes its toll during my actual police service. I don't mind admitting, I mean, we do now, especially men. I had psychotherapy for a whole year after I walked out the door. As soon as that psychotherapy had finished, I went back to uni and did a postgrad teacher certificate in maths. And that's when I became, uh, I got into teaching and then latterly uh, lecturing. Well, speaking about the assistance that was offered for mental health while you're working in the force, I was sitting, I was at a dinner and I was sitting next to a, a former police officer who I think was also quite senior. And he was also working with like on in the children's unit. And he said that they were offered half an hour every six months, which was just shocking because I don't have anything particularly horrendous in my life. Uh, and I do an hour a week of counseling yeah. and I don't feel like that's enough just for me. So, I mean, is it is it better now? Is there more help available? Yeah, I'll tell you what the watershed moment was. I seemed throughout my career to be whatever way you look at it, to be in the wrong place at the right time. And I'll give you an example. On the 12th of December, 1988, there was a big train crash at Clapham Junction. It killed 38 people. After the second day, and I was a DI, I was newly promoted. It was my first day, and I was on the track side dealing with all what was going on. But after 24 hours had elapsed, I said to my boss, who was a top guy, one of the best managers I've ever seen, and he said, I'm going to order £30,000 worth of Bupa counselling vouchers, and I'm going to equally distribute that amongst the police, the fire service, and the ambulance people. We got a phone call three days later saying they'd all evaporated. In other words, they'd all been used. And that was a watershed moment. 
going back to the child protection team, and it was 1990 that I was there, there was still no formal care for people working in that arena. And the first thing I did, and you might think this is quite callous, the child protection work was seen, and I'm going to be blunt here, as women's work, which is totally wrong. And these guys had been on this team for between three and five years. And I called a meeting and I said, you've done enough and and you need to go back to a traditional policing environment. And then if you want to come back, come back. So what I did is I then started targeting some mates of mine from the anti-terrorist branch that had done their time there. Because in the CID, you tend to move on every three to four years. And I got some of the finest investigators I could find the only counselling that was given was by myself to colleagues. We didn't have any occupational health. That has changed uh, to the credit of the Met because too many people uh, were leaving the force through stress, acute stress or the perception that they were under stress. So it's a lot better, a lot better now. That's very, very good to hear. So something else that my sister and I debate all the time because we are true crime enthusiasts. We don't like the word fan because that sounds odd. Is there something wrong with us? Why are people fascinated with true crime? We explain it as being, you know, <laughs> just anxious, Highly anxious, anxious, anxious women who take no risks with their safety. You know, that's how we sort of uh, like to explain it. But we wondered if there was a more um, scientific or psychological explanation. There is, there is. I work with uh, my wife and my three daughters. Uh, we are the directors of the crime lab. We also, we've got another big business, uh, much, much bigger than the crime lab, I have to tell you. And um, that's around event management. But my middle daughter, Lizzie, has been doing a, is doing some research on exactly why mm. it's that we are interested in it. The early signs say this is, this seems to be the general opinion that, first of all, look at the platform they're on at the moment if you go back 10 years or 20 years this wouldn't have happened and because of the explosion of the web it means people can access this material a lot easier again uh, most of my clients in the format that we're in at the moment 90 percent are women aged between 25 and 45. most women want to come along to it out of curiosity and see how far people are prepared to go in terms of committing crime, and then they want to forget it. They might come back for more events, but they want to forget it. But my daughter is doing a more structured questionnaire, a very short one. You know these questionnaires are like if they're gone forever to have a look. But one of the things I did do is I looked at, I did a poll on Facebook and LinkedIn to see people's perception of going out after dark. And the fear of crime seriously outweighs the reality. Oh, really? You're saying that our fear of the crime is disproportionate to the chance of something actually happening? Extremely disproportionate. So for uh, on LinkedIn, so you're looking at professionals with quite a big age range, it's 60% of people will not go out after dark. So I just asked one question, are you prepared to go out after dark? Yes, no, sometimes. But on Facebook, where it was the demographic seemed to be a much younger audience, it was 70%. Put it like this, the chances of you being, well, if you work out this 66 million people in this country, 
and last year there were 716 homicides. Take out a third of those, which unfortunately were domestic abuse, I'm not minimising that, and then divide one by another, multiply by 100, and you've got the percentage of the likelihood of you being killed. However, if you then look at crime figures, and you need to take those with a pinch of salt, there's two measures in the UK, the official Home Office figures. So what is reported to the police, uploaded to the Home Office. There's then the British Crime Survey of England and Wales, and that takes a group of 100,000 people throughout the country. They ask them questions, and then that's collapsed up to the population. So what I find interesting, and this is quite criminological, is to compare the two sets of figures. One thing that's for sure is theft-derived crime in this country is dropping hugely. So theft from motor cars, burglary, dropping massively. And the reason for that is surveillance. What isn't good is serious sexual offences, and sexual offences are rising. On top of that, stalking is on the rise. And myself and Colin Sutton, in a couple of months' time, are doing... You know, you know who I mean by Colin Sutton. Oh, uh, we, we talk about him every episode. <laughs> we, we are familiar. Yeah. We have a brand called Manhunter, him and Mindhunter, me. And we go around the country talking about Levi Belfield, how he brought him to justice. And secondly, I talk about the um, psychology behind it. And we're doing one uh, in a couple of months' time around a guy called Delroy Grant, who was a stalker. And so he's going to talk about the operational side, and then I'm going to talk about stalking. And that is on the rise in this country. Exponentially, it's going up with male on female, but at the same time, incrementally, is female on male. That is also going up. Is that because we're reporting it more, or it's being recognised more as a crime, or it's genuinely happening more, or a combination? I think it's always happened, you know. So when you look at crime statistics, you look at child abuse, uh, that's always gone on uh, and it just hasn't been recorded or reported to the police. But stalking and coercive behaviour is on the rise. And the problem is there is it's lumped the fault of that in terms of investigation is often lumped onto the police. Now, hey, I'm retired, so I'm uh, independent now, but there's a huge blockage at Crown Prosecution Service level, district attorney in the in the US. In that, if a woman's saying one thing and a man's saying the other, and there's no other corroborative evidence, that case will not continue. And that is knocking the confidence of women to go to the police. And furthermore, from my point of view, that is also giving semi-license or full license to people who perpetrate the crime, knowing that there's a good chance they're going to get away with that which is a big worry to me. And then as a psychologist, you then need to go back further and look at some of the stuff that I'm seeing that young males are accessing on the net and some of the studies I've read are terrible. There's a lot of, with young males, and you start at age 10 or 11, there's what a lot of stuff they perceive to be normalised behaviour perpetrated on women. It's not normal. It's not acceptable. So it goes back to the primary object of an efficient police service, and that's prevention. So I think we really do need uh, to be into schools at the top of primary to start saying to boys, if you're having sex with a woman, getting her up 
and strangling her ain't acceptable. And there's more of that, uh, which is a is a is a big worry. I think that's a really really interesting point to raise. And as a former teacher, I know that there are so many things that need to be taught in schools that are not, because there's such a focus on all of the wrong things and the fact that schools are exam factories and you know, especially under this government, education has changed for the worse. So I think that's a really, really brilliant point that you've raised about prevention and going into schools and and actually talking to kids about this, because the one hour a week they get in secondary school on citizenship or what whatever they call it now, because I think that's actually even being removed from the curriculum. It's not enough. No, no, it's not enough. Leveled with that today, I read a report this morning, it's only just come out today, uh, looking at the court the government are looking to bring legislation in where there is not only coercive behavior by male on female particularly in a domestic abuse situation they're going to send them to prison for longer my argument is that we already have the machinery to deal with that is that going to deter me as a potential suspect it's not otherwise we wouldn't have 300 domestic abuse murders in this country from one worse fear to another You mentioned when I saw you at your last event that you are doing a lot of work around Wayne Cousins. And this is a case that terrifies us, obviously, a horrendous case that happened. But the fact that he was a police officer just adds a whole other layer of fear and concern for women, the general public. But can you tell us what you're doing with this case? Yeah, and I, I must admit, I think, you know, I've enjoyed talking to you. And what I'm going to say is is fairly new. Uh, I don't think it's been reported in the press. But I've got to say that his behaviour, uh, when I looked at it, and that's what I was interested in, frightened me. Uh, there is no doubt about that uh, for a number of reasons. What you have, particularly in homicide or murder cases, You've either got disorganised behaviour or organised behaviour. Now, going through the Wayne Cousins thing, most of it, he was highly organised in terms of his behaviour. What he wasn't organised in was covering his tracks. What concerned me was the lengths that he went to, and I would align this guy. I mean, the press give a lot of people nicknames, pseudonyms when they, I mean, the Levi Belfield was called the bus stop stalker or murder or something with regard to uh, Wayne Cousins he was a fox in my view and what he was doing is that he was distancing himself I find this really interesting distancing himself from what I call anchor points in other words his place of work his house where he's socializing and he would find an area to start stalking exactly like a fox looking for a victim On top of that, though, was the planning using his position as a police officer in terms of getting uh, hiring a car. So it looked like an unmarked police car, which he hired from Dover, and then filling that car with police equipment, making it appear that he was a plainclothes detective on duty, and then using the T-nets of the COVID lockdown to handcuff Sarah Everard and put her in the back of the car and raped and murdered her. So are you saying he specifically went to an area not associated with him? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know because I've not seen it because he was in the Met for a a fairly short amount of time. But if I looked at his service record, that would almost show me 
that he was operating in the Clapham, uh, the Clapham area. He started going over Battersea Bridge and AMPR shows that he rapidly turned around. So there was something on the north side of the river that was preventing him from doing that. There is a thing that I've never explored. It could be to do with socioeconomics. If you go over Battersea Bridge, you're into an extremely rich area. If you're in Clapham, yeah, it's quite affluent, but there are also some uh, some fairly poor areas. So I don't know whether he thought in his own mind, well, I'm actually going to go for someone in a poorer area. I don't know. But he didn't know the Clapham area very well, and he was scouring that area for a victim. And had it not been poor Sarah Everard, it would have been someone else. What is good is when supplementing my knowledge with the bus video that caught him and caught both of them, and had it not been for that, he wouldn't have been arrested uh, so quickly. His behaviours were very, very interesting. And where he was going to an anchor point, he was clever. So where he exchanged Sarah's body, I believe, from the hire car into his own, it was a bit like the World War II prisoner of war camps, you know, where the lights shine and there's a, uh, there's a uh, what's it called? A blind spot. A blind spot. That's the, that's the thing. So he was able to park his car there knowing that there was no CCTV there no AMPR so that he could he could do that. Also, the other thing that I find interesting, there is no evidence whatsoever of murder in that case. Sorry, you're going to have to explain that. Yeah, what does that mean? So that means to prove murder, you've got to, it's got to be premeditated. In other words, you've got to go out with the intention of killing that girl. There was no doubt that he intended to go out and seriously sexually assault a woman of his scouring. There's no doubt about that. But then to prove murder, you've got to prove his intention to kill her or do some grievous bodily harm that eventually ends up in her dying or mistaken identity. So if I go along to kill one of you, I take a shot, it misses and it hits someone else, that's murder. There's no evidence at all of him of an intention to kill. Now, bearing in mind, he had a very, very good attorney, a king's counsel. That means... I personally, having looked at the evidence and everything, I would have put it in front of the court and gone for a manslaughter. But there must have been something that prevented that happening. And I think it was conscience. I think he pleaded guilty as a bit of remorse. The only thing, and if you're on a jury, this is speculative, the only thing that perhaps shows an intention to kill is he ordered 100 metres of carpet cling film. And he ordered that five days beforehand, and there was no uh, receipts or anything that showed that he was going to do any DIY. So my my supposition there is that he was going to wrap the body up in cling film and dump it in the river. If you think he felt remorse, he's technically not a psychopath? This is what I was going to ask, the remorse that, that intrigued me. Right. If you go back to all of the uh, the traits or variables of a psychopath, psychopaths tend not to be remorseful well at the time you took and you've got to talk about the time here there was no remorse either and if you also look at one of the traits it's shallow emotion and treating people as inanimate objects he was looking he was a fox looking for prey the fact is that that person was a walking human didn't even enter his mind there's also the business there as well that and again i think you need to stick to fact here is that there is this erroneous assumption that some killers, 
want to get caught, they don't. Particularly, Wayne Cousins is going to spend, and you're not allowed to say this, but I am, he's going to spend the whole of his life in solitary confinement. Because two things, he won't be able to cope with prison life. And secondly, you know what the culture is in prison, they will skin him alive. Yeah, hard to feel sorry for him, but yeah. Hear me clearly, I don't feel sorry for him at all. It boils down to choice. That's what it boils down to. And in Lord Justice Fulford's comments at the end, uh, in the judgment, and that's on the net, he said there is no rhyme or reason why you did this. He was not suffering from mental illness. That's for sure. He was examined by two psychiatrists. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network, with gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Do you know an army mom who deserves an extra special gift this Mother's Day? Order a commemorative brick to be placed in her honor on the grounds of the National Museum of the United States Army in Alexandria, Virginia. You can personalize the brick with the perfect message and even order a replica to have as a keepsake. Order now and her brick will be installed by Veterans Day. Remember mom's service in a way that will last forever. Design your brick and place your order at armyhistory.org. That's armyhistory.org. He was slightly depressed. Well, I'm slightly depressed sometimes. Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I don't come out and do that. We have taken some quick fire questions from our listeners and from our audience on social media and so forth. And I'm going to start with one that is on this case because it ties in nicely. From what we know, they knew that Wayne Cousins had a record for flashing or he obtained it while he was already a police officer. So, how did he keep his job as a police officer? I feel like even if he was like a baker, he would have lost his job for that. How do you keep your job as a police officer when you have something so serious on your record? There's two parts to that answer. Is First of all, no one knew it was Wayne Cousins. So yes, he had been flashing. So the there were five instances altogether. Going through them, and it's important that listeners hear this, the first one was in the Kent area. So he was flashing. The second one, and again, please hear me right here, they are all serious, but this was horrendous. Just imagine this, he was naked, forgive me, masturbating in the bushes in Kent. He came flying out, completely naked, to a woman that was cycling, looked her straight in the face and started using some expletives. That must have been terrible. I just don't know how you deal with that. You know, and I'm supposed to be a hardened former DCI, I would have been extremely frightened. That's the second one. That was reported to the police. And in all honesty, if I'd been a DCI, I would have had an offender profile done on that because that is showing that someone, someone's behaviour is going to escalate. The next two are in a McDonald's at exactly the same place, the same McDonald's, where he goes through and he uses his own MasterCard to pay for uh, his food, whatever he had. Now, a lot of people think that that was reported to the police with a registration number immediately. It wasn't. And there's nothing wrong with this at all. It was reported two days later. However, it had a registration number on it, 
if I'd been supervising that, I would have been banging my fist on the table saying, okay, registration number, that would have come straight back to him. Why wasn't he arrested? And I've got to say, I don't know what was going through the mind of the Metropolitan Police at the time, but they were too slow off the mark there. And if you look at prioritisation, there is no evidence, and this is a difficult question to suggest, that by flashing, that's going to lead to murder. But in this case, it did do. In the same way, there's no evidence that if someone accesses violent material, they were going to be violent. And also, my question, to sort of put it back, is even if he had been caught, the tariff for that went from six months to two years. And in preparation for today, because I knew you were going to ask this question, only 20 men have been sentenced to two years for doing that. 20 out of all of the allegations that come around. Also, the thing is, is even if he had gone inside, yes, it would have probably prevented the murder of Sarah Everard, but would he have come out and continued his behaviour? And I'm not condoning his behaviour. Unfortunately, as a psychologist, I can't think of any way of screening. Uh, what's the other term for when someone comes in? Um, I've had these checks done on me recently. Oh, the DBS? Yeah, DBS, betting. There is nothing which will stop that happening again in the future. And it annoys me when people come onto the press and say, we're doing this, that and the other to make sure it doesn't happen again. The fact is, it could easily happen again. People in positions of power, and that's what this was, power and control, uh, can easily do it because there is no psychometric test that you can run that will indicate that that person is going to commit offences once they're a police officer. None whatsoever. The only thing is whistleblowing. Police culture is secrecy and social isolation. Can you see someone ratting on their mates? For two years, Wayne Cousins was known colloquially by his police colleagues as the rapist. Oh, I mean, I feel like that's a red flag. Yeah, just a bit. So if I'd been a sergeant, his sergeant, I would have been going around the periphery as the start of a 10, asking colleagues why I had that nickname. You don't get labelled with that for nothing. I think this question's got to be asked around that. But the most important thing is, is it distills to money, to cash. All of these anecdotes that have happened with uh, serious sexual offences perpetrated by officers, the murder of poor Sarah Everard, taking pictures of dead body, which is appalling behaviour. Where were their sergeant? Where was their inspector? First line supervision, leadership. And that's a big problem. We should be quite honest in that our tagline for our podcast should be fuck the Tories. We are not fans of all the cuts that have been made in every kind of uh, social welfare situation, teaching, healthcare, the police. You know, with all these cuts, you're making a lot of these jobs impossible to do effectively. Yeah. Is that something that the police force is struggling with? If you do a poll of uh, who's loved the most in this country, it's the NHS. Two things there is making sure they're properly funded, but also making sure that they're highly efficient. And those two things go hand in glove. And it's the same with the police. And the big problem with the police is the former commissioner, I've got ultimate respect for her. I don't know her that well, but I do know her, Cresta Dick. Because of the cuts she had to make, she cut down from 30 to 17 major investigation suites for murder. 
So that meant, let's just say that I was working in Chiswick and Hounslow, we did have a major investigation suite and that actually closed. So then as a chief inspector, I might be required to work from Sutton or from the West End. Well, at the time I was living in Staines, I'm not going to travel that distance because that is adding potentially four hours to my travelling time. And whilst I'm a dedicated public servant, I'm not going to do that. And I've got to say very, very cold-bloodedly that I think Theresa May's got blood on her hands because she was the one that implemented that. You're in a safe <laughs> space, Steve. We're in agreement. Anyone that would disagree with you has long left our listenership because we're very vocal about this as well. Yeah, absolutely disgusting what they've been doing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a, a problem. But it does go down to efficiency uh, as well as how effectively how efficiently they're being used. And I think what we need with the police is a Royal Commission. Expensive, I know, but you either say to these homogenous groups like the police, sort yourselves out, or I will, i.e. the government. And it seems they're not. So you've then got to get an inquiry to force them into that. And I think that's what's needed. And what's needed is, what is it that the public want from the police? What can the police effectively deliver and stuff they can't deliver, boot out. Do you think, because I don't know if I've ever told you this, Steve, but me and my sister were Palestinian. So we are from an area where this is more for the, the army because it's a brutal military occupation, but where they don't have enough capacity, they outsource to private security and protection companies. And those private companies have their own codes of conduct and moral compasses. And it's terrifying what they are able to get on with. Do you think that we're ever going to be in a situation where you have like private security companies and private firms taking over some of the jobs that ideally would be done by a noble and moral police force in this country? We already do. Uh, and that is in um, London Borough, Kenton and Chelsea, there's a retired officer, a very clever officer, who has a business called My Bobby in the Street or something like that. And what happens is he will target an area and then say, okay, these, this, this is what you're paying your, uh, your, your tax for, your local tax that goes into, the, into a police precept. If you pay me X amount per month and there's a lot of people in your street, then I will provide uniform patrol, patrols. And that's exactly uh, what they agree to, and it's working well. The problem is with that is when you go into a poor socioeconomic area, there's a lot of fragility, as you know, with families in this country at the moment. They want to just make sure they're putting the food on the table and making sure the house is heated. So paying a, a bobby or a constable is just simply not going to happen. My question is, and this is a, an unsavoury one, are the police trusted to do what they're doing now? And if the answer is no, then the public need a better service. I don't personally buy into that. I just think the police need to become far more efficient and uh, properly funded. If you look at the roots of crime, criminology, and looking at reducing crime, solving it, it's not a simple, clean bullet, is it? It's not, you can't get a silver bullet. It's quite complex. Uh, and that's why we offer degrees in criminology at you know, our universities. 
Yeah. So Steve, sorry to keep coming back to it. I'm fascinated by your teaching background and how you went from being a detective to, to becoming a teacher. What what motivated you to do that? And then what ultimately motivated you to uh, to leave teaching like I did? <laughs> I think it was really two things is that when I was 48, I had a choice. Uh, they were doing this thing called Pension Plus. So I could have taken my pension and carried on doing my job. They were short of senior detectives. And I joined in the 70s where there was a big void. The police service in London was undermanned. So when it came to me retiring, there was a huge amount of brain drain, I think they call it. So therefore, uh, you could be asked to stay on. Well, to be honest with you, it taken its toll on me, particularly around uh, family life. Uh, my wife, Kate, was also a police officer doing similar things to me. So, And we had three fairly young children. So I came out and I told you, I've shared with you, I had psychotherapy for a year and then I was looking what to do. I was offered some cracking jobs, some really good jobs. At one stage, I was thinking of going to the criminal bar, but decided against that because uh, that probably been longer work. And then uh, it's a nice story, this. I went and delivered some books. So whilst I was still quite fragile, I delivered some maths books to a school in Staines. And the head of maths was really nice, and she was doing a lesson on probability. And I said, oh, I dealt with uh, some corrupt roulette tables, you know, when I was in the Met. I said, do you want me to? Oh, shit, I'd love that. So we had a chat, and the long and short of it is, about six months later, I was at that school doing the graduate teacher program. Wow. Uh, so I was doing it as a like an apprenticeship. From a psychological point of view, I I was not good in my first year. Nobody is. <laughs> I wish they told you that when you're training, that it's okay not to be good. Yeah. So I had to change my behavior from being a senior investigating officer to uh, teaching and learning with children. And after a year, once I got that sorted out, and it was my behavior that was affecting theirs. Yeah. Once I'd sorted that out, it was fantastic. And I had a much better relationship with the children. True. Yeah, I, I realized that too. Actually, the more I chilled out, actually, the more chilled out they were. They kind of mirror you a little bit, don't they? And then, uh, and you'll understand this, where we were living, the traffic was getting us down. So we moved lock, stock and barrel to Norfolk. Oh, wow. I very cheekily applied for head of education for Her Majesty's or His Majesty's prison service in the eastern area. And I got it. And I'd been there. Uh, for three years and I was about to be sacked not for being a naughty boy or anything <laughs> my face really just didn't fit and so I left before I was pushed and it was then that um, I was giving some coaching to a young woman that had narrowly failed her mathematics exams and her mum said to me ex-police psychology background why don't you do some business and the rest is history do you want to tell us about the crime lab? Because it's amazing. I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, we've got the crime lab. I think you've probably seen about a tenth of it because one of the things that we do is we offer leadership and management training through crime scene investigation. So we'll set up a crime scene and uh, get people to examine that crime scene. And it's based on a murder case that I investigated in Hounslow years ago. And people have to understand what fingerprints are, so they take their own fingerprints, dust for fingerprints, go through a case file, and then have to come up with a scientific answer. And so you can appoint a leader, and we can give feedback to that. Or the companies would do it just purely for a team-building event. 
So we do loads of that, and I have people subcontracted all over the country to do that for us. Oh, we might have to do that because as much as we like talking about true crime, I have a suspicion that me and my sister will be genuinely shit at solving anything. <laughs> I don't think so. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that during the lockdown, I produced over 50 one-hour gigs. And of course, Deanna, I've got it right. <laughs> You've come along to some of those. and It ranges from why women kill, why children kill, offender profiling. So those were all being done online with my greatest partner. That was Airbnb because they couldn't rent out properties. So they started doing online events and it was fantastic. At the same time, our business was really struggling because our business is bringing people together, either in event management. Then the whole genre, dreadful word, of crime started becoming popular and it was offered more and more in schools. So we will go along to A-levels, uh, psychology students, and what we will do is to bring to life the academic side. Why is it you're learning about Stanley Milgram, for instance, and how that actually works in an applied setting? So we do quite a lot of that. So summer school lecturing, that sort of thing we do. And in I think in four weeks' time, I'm going along to 15-year-olds that are doing a GCSE in psychology. So I'm doing five of these talks, most of which you've experienced. With regard to Fuller's as well, is that we're, we're contracted to 200, 200 of their pubs, 200 uh, to go around and do the talks that we do. And it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So therefore, as a business now, I'm starting to recruit some former detectives, but you've also got to be a psychologist and there ain't too many of those around. Your gigs are amazing. And you also, you mentioned you're doing online ones. I have registered to almost every single one until December, I think, including your pub quiz, your Christmas yeah, yeah. pub quiz, <laughs> online pub quiz. So I'm super excited. Rachi, you have to be in my team. Yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there. And also the big, the big developing area is uh, what Sutton and I are doing together. That's what I was going to mention, the super group. Yeah. <laughs> the dream team. It's quite good because we disagree with a lot. Uh, particularly around psychology. He, as a senior investigating officer, took far more risks than I ever would have done. And the, one of the examples is Belfield. He put him under surveillance. That was a really sharp move. I wouldn't have done that uh, because if he had spotted a surveillance team, that, that, anyway, he did it and his leadership is outstanding. He's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. So I think the foil of one against the other and explaining to people the psychology around a lot of these cases bodes quite well. And the big bit of work that I'm doing at the moment is looking at, I think you guys would love this, is looking at how to keep women safe on the streets and at home. Amazing. Four-fifths of that is the psychology, and the last bit is breakaway techniques. On my 50th birthday, I entered a... Uh, a karate dojo just to do something with my kids and anyway four years later I became a black belt and after black belt I then looked at disarming techniques so that's my speciality that keeps me mentally alert um, I still practice but we're looking at uh, rolling out this course and at the same time charging corporations a fee but we're then looking to work with victim support schemes to maybe be able to offer 
some free places. So if someone is subject to early domestic abuse, that should help. So that is an area of work that I'm kind of interested in at the moment. Oh, that's amazing. You know, we, um, our podcast was uh, picked up by a network, the Good Wives Network. And so they actually appear on TV on in the States on Amazon Prime and so forth. But they have a nominated charity, which also works with police officers and pairing them with domestic abuse victims so that they can better understand what that domestic abuse can look like. Because sometimes it is very difficult, isn't it, to detect from outside, especially when you have these master manipulators doing the abusing. I don't know, it's just something that obviously comes up time and time again when you're talking about true crime is one of our fears and our main names is to to raise awareness on how to be a bit more safe. All right, so here's one from uh, one of our, uh, this one came in on social media. How do you tell the difference between someone who's genuinely guilty and someone who's just really pissed off at being accused of something that they haven't done? Well, there's a question that's really difficult uh, lie detection is inherently difficult. Police officers think they're very good at lie detecting, but the older they get in service, the worse they are, and they're no different uh, from members of the public. That's the first thing to say. So that is really difficult. I'm not a advocate of polygraphs. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. because I know how to fool them, and I have done. I've been hooked up to one and told a pack of lies and got away with it twice. In terms of cues and clues, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm looking up here now, maybe I'm going to tell a lie, so I'm looking into the ether to try and draw a lie. Yes, there are clues and uh, and cues that will indicate that someone is lying, but equally, I mean, one of the things is you get people scratching their nose. Now, they might be scratching their nose because they're lying, but they might be scratching their nose because they've got an itch. So the whole business and the science around uh, detecting whether someone is truly guilty or not is difficult. And I've got to say, and again, you need to forgive me, I was party, not party, I was the investigating officer for convicting a guy for serious sexual offences. And he went to prison for a long time. And I was never, ever happy with that case. There was just something wrong with it. And three days later, sorry, three years later at the Criminal Court of Appeal, we walked out and it couldn't have been him. So just imagine, and again, you need to hear me clearly here, you've got all the trauma of that man being innocent in jail for rape, where you can imagine what goes on there. Uh, And then there's also us me looking back, what is it that I could have done differently to change the outcome of that? So the whole business of lies and lie detecting is fascinating, but it all boils down to linguistics. That is the most reliable way. So if I'm telling a pack of lies, I will probably revert to third person. If I'm then remorseful, so uh, there was this um, famous cyclist that was taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Lance Armstrong. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. It's on the net. And he went round in a big, big circle, didn't use any personal pronouns. 
and you can then analyze that material. Two years later, he's asked the same questions again, and he makes a full confession. And comparing the linguistics to that is a very, very good example where you need, in my view, to move away from physiological signs to linguistical signs, because for me, that seems to be, although there is no hard evidence, that that is far more reliable. Oh, that's so interesting. That would explain like there's a rise of people analyzing statements on YouTube and stuff like that. Do you know what? That is interesting. It reminds me of, God, the Unabomber, what's his name? Ted Kaczynski and how it was, he was caught through the study of linguistics, wasn't it? Yes. His yeah. the letters he wrote. Yeah. And the turns of phrases he used and stuff. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. We had a question. What are the top three skills that you've learned as a detective that you use in the classroom? The first one is undoubtedly teamwork. Undoubtedly, if you watch all these police programs, you get an inspector or a superintendent whizzing off on their own doing stuff. That simply doesn't happen. So the first thing is, is teamwork. And if you look at my track record for homicide investigation, I solved one out of the 13 cases that I solved as a senior investigating officer and the leader. So therefore, you've got to look at how did the others get solved? And it was through teamwork, bouncing ideas off people. So if you're talking at the higher echelons, that is the first thing, is, is making sure that people that are working at a higher, le higher level as a detective are team players. And if they're not, they don't interest me at all. That's even when it comes to things like having to go through CCTV records, which is getting more and more prevalent because of the technological world we, we live in. The second one is giving the investigators the right amount of space to investigate what you've asked them to do. In other words, if you look at leadership style is not being too overbearing. But there's then that fine line that you need to sometimes rein people in. So that is a, a, a really sort of supervision or management style is giving them the space, but making sure uh, that they are, you know, they're staying on track. And I think the third one is definitely human resource management. The whole idea of that, to give you an example, what I took over at Townsley, just down the road from you guys, is I hired Chiswick Town Hall. And that's where the four police stations were amalgamated into one. There used to be a DCI at each one, and I was it. Just one DCI for the four police stations, you know, Brentford, Chiswick, Feltham and Hounslow. So I called everyone together, and I just sort of laid out my stall, really, saying, some of you know me, some of you don't know me, and making sure you really set the tone and get to know who your people are so you know them very well and make sure that, you know, you forget as a DCI, you're in a senior position, is making sure that you're approachable and nicking stuff from the states. I used to do what Walmart used to do every day of his life, and that's management by wandering around. So I would go and have a look. And that meant I would then start looking at what detectives under my command had in their drawers. What materials in there? Is there anything in there that shouldn't be there? Is there any early signs that shows that someone is doing something, perhaps what they shouldn't be doing. And that was very unpopular, but nevertheless, it made me, made me as comfortable as I possibly could that I had a really good ethical workforce. And occasionally, you know, as a DCI, I was given a brief to, uh, to look at someone covertly that was drug trafficking and ended up in prison. 
And I had absolutely no scruples or any morals about making sure that person went to prison for what they were doing, abusing their power. And that's a good link, isn't it, with, you know, if you look at the four reasons for serial killing, one of them is power and control. If only all police officers were like you. I wasn't perfect, Deanna. I'll tell you now, I lost my temper. I loved being a police officer. And I think more to the point was checking my behaviour. I'm not some sort of super investigator. I'm a public servant. And, you know, and I was paid. Uh, I was paid very well to be a, a DCI. I think when I left, I was on 45000 and that was some years ago. And I paid a lot of money for a good, uh, a good police pension. Well, that doesn't sound that much for me, considering the amount of danger that you're putting yourself in and the things that you have to be subjected to. I'm going to end on one final question. Just because I meant to ask it the other night when I came to your uh, talk, you mentioned that your dissertation when you went back to uni. Oh right, yeah, yeah. For your psych uh, and math degree, was it psych and math you did together? Yeah, I did, and I'm glad I did because the the math side has helped me with statistical analysis. Yeah, uh, and in fact, I'm doing that. I'm going to be doing that in uh, this evening with my young daughter that's waiting to do a dissertation. I did it on why people bite each other at crime scenes. So can I ask why do people bite each other at crime scenes? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite fascinating. And it's an area of physical science that's up in the air at the moment. So if I bit someone and I get a scientist to come along, how reliable is it after they've taken teeth impressions? But I was more interested in, because I'd had some bite mark cases uh, one was a was a murder case in you know there's this song Warwick Avenue well I get to Warwick Avenue but well, this was in Warwick Avenue in uh, up towards Kilburn and Paddington the long and short of it is that a woman was found dead in her flat very quickly I was on my way home and my uniform colleagues were at breaking point and I was an inspector so I said look I'll deal with that call it's only going to be five minutes um, I'll meet some mates well that five minute call uh, ended up in a three-month inquiry. And what happened, opened the letterbox, it was clear there was someone dead behind those doors, forced entry and went in, and a woman was dead, face down, uh, on a bed, profusely bitten. Uh, and it turns out that she was bitten post-mortem, so after she died. So that fascinated me, and it turned out that it was um, her neck, the cause of death, her neck had been clinically broken. And that is one thing where I then started thinking and talking to the pathologist at the post-mortem, who could have personally done that? So you're looking at someone in special forces, perhaps a martial artist, someone of that ilk, maybe even a police officer. Anyway, it turned out it was an American Marine that had murdered his wife, but I was interested in why he'd bitten her. That's what interested me. So that sparked the interest. Uh, and then I met, I used a guy called Professor Bernard Sims, who's dead now, uh, one of the most sought after, and one of the most clever guys around forensic odontology, the bite mark. So we instructed him. So we got talking and I said, why do people do this? And he said, there's not a lot of research around that. So that stimulated some inquiries. Well, what it boils down to is this. You are sisters. Have you got any other siblings? We're enough. Did you either? bite each other or knew of any child that has bitten another sibling? I mean, it's not something luckily we did to one another. No. 
what I needed is I needed some case files and I needed to do some questionnaires. Walking into a prison as an inspector, asking convicted prisoners to help with a questionnaire ain't going to happen. So I had to use my primary sources were mainly case files. But what it boils down to is this, is that the reason why children bite each other is jealousy. And normally it's the second or third sibling biting upwards. So the second sibling will bite the first one. It's usually jealousy around the lack of attention from the mum. Me and my sister actually only had one physical-ish fight in a car park in Belgium once. We're relatively civilised otherwise. I'm the older sibling and she's definitely the jealous one. So, yeah. It's to do with jealousy. And that actually trips on to adulthood. So with that particular case, we wondered why the, ch- the husband was jealous. Well, there's only one reason, isn't there? And we found underneath the floorboard some records uh, showing that when her husband was in the States uh, on active service, uh, she was entertaining men and uh, taking money and recording the amounts of money and the frequency and everything. So that showed us perhaps a possible cause. So, yeah, there are three main reasons and they get more and more grisly. And there's also a correlation with the depth of the bite mark. The first one is frustration aggression hypothesis. So if I kept calling you Diana for the next 10 years, you'd be highly hacked off with me. And that would frustrate frustrate you. And there's this thing, frustration aggression hypothesis, that would say if you frustrate someone enough, they're going to become violent. If you take, there's a famous footballer called Luis Suarez, and where he couldn't couldn't achieve his aims on the football pitch by kicking it, he would bite people. Now, he's bitten three players. So usually that is the correlation with the bite marks. That's just enough to say to someone, I'm frustrated, there we go. That's that's the first level. The next level is sadistic biting. I'm going to bite you to make sure it hurts. Yeah, and the correlation with the teeth marks is deeper. So you can tell potentially from a bite mark the root of it? Yeah. And the last one, which is extremely rare, is egocentric, cannibalistic biting. That means, and this is really grisly, that means I'm going to bite you and maybe even rip out mouths of the flesh because I want to taste your blood. Egocentric, cannibalistic biting. And that's the worst level. And that's going to kill someone probably through shock. The worst thing with that is that that is one of the areas of murder which is self-fulfilling and will escalate someone's criminal career. So once you've done that once, you then need to go and bite someone else. So I suppose it's almost Dracula-esque in some ways. And the correlation with the bite mark is a lot greater. So if someone is doing that, you need to be onto the press immediately uh, and start appealing for witnesses uh, to not only to the event, but the, to the person that's likely to have done that. And I think the last case we had was a body found at Heathrow Airport, I think it was. But in this country, you get three or four of those every year. So it's really quite exciting, but it's quite macabre in some ways. My mum, who's still alive, I'm in my 60s now, my mum's still alive. And uh, I think she was quite shocked when I told, because she holds a bachelor's degree. I showed her what I'd done. She said, oh, my God, I thought you were doing something on the crime rate in England and Wales. She said, no, no, no. It doesn't always follow that, of course, if you get somewhere with bite marks, it's 80% of cases is jealousy. And when you look at the cases when they come to fruition and you want to find out the motive, 
which the police are not particularly good at doing, actually, <laughs> would you believe? All they want to do is to solve the crime. Colin Sutton wasn't interested in Belfield's state of mind at all. He wanted him off the streets, and quite rightly so. Uh, that was that was really, really interesting. I do a, one of these hour gigs on bite marks, yeah. Well, we'll be posting in the show notes and on our socials all different places where you can find Steve because I highly recommend going and seeing him live if you can. If not, there's these online gigs he's talking about. You have a really cool Facebook group as well, don't you, for people interested in criminology? Yeah, I do. too. Again, I did that really as a testament to the Metropolitan Police Service and the universities that I've either served at or studied under was just really, it was sort of like um, I decided that I wasn't going to charge. As long as there's that interest, then I would give those monthly uh, gigs and tell people that don't want it anymore. But the membership is increasing all the time. We had 20 members uh, this week. So I think it's up to two and a half thousand. I much prefer, to be honest with you, to do it live because then you get the chances we have done to have a chat afterwards. You can find us now. What we've done is we've crystallised. As we're adding to our live events, we've got out a lockdown. If you go to crimelive.co.uk, it crystallises all of our live events. And one of the ones we're planning, it probably won't be to the new year, we found at Fuller's Pub that um, Anne Eddowes, who was the fourth victim of Jack the Ripper, where she was drinking. There's a, there's a lot of stuff, isn't there, where you can do Ripper walks, but... What hasn't really been addressed is the type of person that the Ripper was. So we're going to, this pub is closed during the weekend and we're going to open it up. We're going to have a Ripperology uh, weekend where we're going to recreate the crime scene so we can teach people blood spatter pattern analysis. Uh, we're going to get people, I've got some of the original case files. I know you shared um, at the last event I went to, you shared the original profile of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, that's right. Fascinating. Yeah. Amazing. And again, it's really just to keep it so it is true crime. Uh, no speculation. in. I think we all like to uh, speculate about who's done what, but trying to keep it as scientific as possible and just really make it unique. I mean, there's some great people. I see some great people on the circuit doing similar to us, you know, and they're very, very good. But, you know, we have a different slant, really. You know, I was a senior police officer, detective, but I'm more interested in showing people the why. And that's why people come along to our events, I think. Thank you so much, Steve. Absolute pleasure. You've been you've been just amazing and inspirational. And honestly, this has been a lesson that we've learned is that Deanna's persistence has paid off because we got you here. I could be incredibly annoying, but I do get what I want from it. So Good. again, I've made peace with it. So Steve, what I was thinking the whole way through this is just how lucky your daughters are, you know? What's interesting is particularly around some of the events that we do, most of them have been designed by them. So they will load the gun, as it were, and I will go along to the event and fire the bullet. And uh, collegiately, we're able to work together. But like next week, we had a we had a meeting yesterday saying that what we can't do on holidays to talk about work because, you know, it bores the partners. Be strict with that. You deserve a break. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steve. And really, honestly, it's been such a pleasure. It's been a, a pleasure and a privilege to, to have you here. Do you know what? I, I wish we could afford the uh, royalties to have um, the song What a Man by Salt and Pepper to introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been amazing and enlightening and inspirational. And, and really, it's 
it's an absolute honor that you've you've come to speak to us today i mean my final words are these is you know i know the police service are going through bad times but if you want to be a police officer go for it it's a really really good career anyone that's considering studying psychology sociology you know just do it go ahead do it uh find a niche drill down on it and just be the best you possibly can thank you so much see you next week bye 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 hey there thanks for being a loyal listener do you need a new website or want to boost your social media performance or do you hate podcast editing you've tried optimizing your website and social media channels but you're still not getting the listeners, downloads, and engagement you want? We, the Safi sisters, love helping people with tasks that they hate. We know a thing or two about podcasts, websites, and social media, and we love working with other podcasters and business owners. So why not head over to SwitchbladeSistersSocialClub.com and go to our Work With Us section. We believe in collaboration over competition. A rising tide raises all ships. Bye! Powerful is the Cox Network. So powerful that one day the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Do you know an army mom who deserves an extra special gift this Mother's Day? Order a commemorative brick to be placed in her honor on the grounds of the National Museum of the United States Army in Alexandria, Virginia. You can personalize the brick with the perfect message and even order a replica to have as a keepsake. Order now and her brick will be installed by Veterans Day. Remember mom's service in a way that will last forever. Design your brick and place your order at armyhistory.org. That's armyhistory.org.